Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 90 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you will find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast available now at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can find the latest episode posted there. You can watch it on the website or click through, subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, well, I feel like I've been talking about it for the last five episodes, but uh, this is the last stretch here before 100. Almost two years ago, I announced that I was doing this podcast, and the promise I made to myself at the very beginning of that is that I would commit to 100 episodes, come hell or high water, uh, even if we spent the last 50 episodes just sitting together in silence, I told myself I would do it. And uh, here we are at the last stretch. I see the finish line. Uh, we have 10 episodes left here. If you've been listening this entire time, phenomenal for you. I, you know, uh, it actually came up in conversation uh, this week, someone who told me that they were listening to the podcast. So uh, uh, I'll share that story. Um, but if you've been listening this whole time, it really means a lot. Um, the last couple of weeks, I've enjoyed it as much as ever. Um, and it hasn't been perfect every time, but that's the process. And I'm glad I've stuck with it. Uh, we've talked a lot about the yin and yang of the Goggins type approach versus the body project approach, which is on the one hand, beating yourself uh, and uh, sort of self-flagellating, you know, going through life with like a wool shirt and uh, telling yourself you're a little bitch and that pain is weakness leaving the body. Uh, or you can be, um, excuse me, <clears throat> or you can be uh, kinder to yourself, you know. And actually, I was going to talk about this later, but maybe we'll just jump into it now. But you can be kinder to yourself and see the kind of uh, progress you make. Um, I had, anyway, I guess just to summarize, that's what the podcast has been. It's been challenging. Some episodes have not been good. Some episodes have been relatively good, in my opinion. If you're a fan of this podcast, I'm sure you have favorite episodes. If you hate this podcast, it's all been garbage. Um, but uh, in terms of just committing to something and seeing it through to the very end, no matter what the outcome is, uh, you know, I think you forge something doing that. And so uh, I still need to give more thought to whether or not this is going to continue past episode 100. But considering how busy I've been and, um, you know, how sort of easy this workflow has been, it's still been somewhat challenging to just, as much as I've been enjoying it the last couple of weeks, there's still a part of me when it's time to do the podcast, I think I might not do it. <laughs> And I'm always glad that I did because everything gets done. You know, I mean, one thing I've been telling myself is it, it can all get done. Just trust the process. Just dedicate the time you need to things. Don't be lazy. Don't put things off. I mean, I told this story uh, last week, I think, about going to the transfer station, right? Going to the city dump here in uh, Berkeley, California. And uh, seeing the long ass line going around the block and just my first impulse was to just keep driving, and go home and put it off. But the sooner you dive in, the sooner it'll be done. And uh, that's the approach I'm taking with most things these days. It's never, it's like going to the gym. The hardest part is packing your bag, getting in the car and going. Once you're up, once you're there and up on the treadmill, you're always glad you did it. It's never as bad as you think it's going to be. 
And uh, that's true for school, that's true for work, that's true for doing the podcast or any creative project that you're putting off. <sighs> because it's not always perfect. And um, I, had, uh, I had an experience at the end of this last week that um, exemplified that. And today was actually the day where I was sort of retooling and putting in the work to not um, have a similar experience. So uh, I started learning Chinese this summer. And I've been doing really well in the course so far. It's a lot of work. We're basically doing a year's worth of Chinese over the summer. Uh, so you do an entire semester's worth of work in six weeks. It's a very fast pace. We're learning like 100, we're probably averaging like 150 characters a week, which is uh, just, it's kind of breakneck speed. You really can't stop, you know, and I've seen some people in the class who either don't take to the language very well or are not studying and, you know, in life in general, you see this, uh, you know, I've talked about this in terms of my, my early life as a student, which is you can trade on talent or whatever for a certain amount of time, but it's the people who are just kind of slowly chipping away at things and doing the work, uh, that you'll look up at some point and see that these people have actually sur surpassed you. And so I'm seeing some people sort of falling behind at this point, but there was something about this last week, which... I actually dedicated more time than I had been previously to doing homework. I used Sunday, which is today, the day I record the podcast is usually on Sundays. I used Sunday to do Monday and Tuesday's homework, so I was very far ahead. Excuse me. Um, and yet, um, we have a test every Friday, and we can take it any time during the day, as long as we turn it in before midnight. And so the last few weeks I've been spending Fridays just studying for six to eight hours, just reviewing all the material from the week before. And I never go into a test feeling 100% confident, but I do have this moment as I'm reviewing where I've looked over everything. And I, I, it, I'm usually doing this move where I start going over things a second time. And I just have this feeling that just comes over me. It's like, now is the time. Just do it. Now is the time to do it. And so that's when I take the test and it's always worked out great. I've gotten a, I got a 95 on the first test. I got a 96 on the second test. But as I was reviewing for the test, I just had this, I just had a feeling, you know, I was doing the work. I was reviewing the workbook. I was reviewing the characters. And even though it all looked good, I just had this looming feeling like something's not right. And right before I started taking the test, cause you have like an hour and a half to take it, you have to do it in one sitting. I used the restroom right before I started so that I wouldn't be uncomfortable. And I remember as I was peeing, <laughs> I remember I, I told myself, remember, progress is not linear. And I think I went in this test like not in the best headspace. I had some uh, work stuff that came up that was kind of distracting. I, don't, I won't go into it, but um, I, I just felt off somehow. And I started taking the test, and from the minute it started, I, I've never had a test-taking experience like this in the last, you know, two years that I've been in school, where it, it wasn't a complete meltdown or nightmare situation, but I felt this pressure the entire time that I was not going to finish. And to be fair, I think there was something about this test, it just felt overwhelmingly difficult. It, there, there, just, there were ways in which the previous tests seemed to follow naturally from the discussions we had had, from the, from the work I had seen in our workbook. It felt very um, 
they were very intuitive tests. It was exactly the types of things that you that you uh, would have expected to have seen. This test was just very different. It just didn't land well. I never felt very confident. I was kind of rushing through the entire thing. And uh, yeah, just just really, you know, I felt like there was just something at my heels the entire time. And I actually finished everything, all the required work with 18 seconds left. I submitted the test. I had no time to review it. And uh, there was a fair amount that still needed to be graded by the instructor, but I had certainly missed a lot of things that could have been graded automatically, which was very disappointing because normally I'd miss like one or two questions maybe. Um, but this one, I did the math and I realized even if I got perfect on all the things that the teacher would have to grade themselves, the highest I could get on this exam was an 86, which is a B. And if, and I got to be honest with you, I was really disappointed I was really upset with myself on the one hand because, you know, I had prepared extra, I, I, I had actually prepared more for this because more for this exam than the previous ones. And in some ways, I mean, if you've, I, there, there is an episode probably over a year ago where I'm in my first semester of chemistry where I, I got a test and I got a, like a D on it. And that was just absolutely deflating. And at that time, I remember feeling like it was inevitable. You know, I felt my performance the previous semester I had gotten straight A's was a fluke. And I was back in this place where I was sort of trading on my talent or whatever it was. But sooner or later, the other shoe was going to drop and it would be back to business as usual where I was struggling with classes and unmotivated or whatever. And I'm not going to say that that you know, that's how I really felt. Again, I didn't completely go back to that place, but it was really deflating. And, um, you know, I'm sure we've all had, we've all had disappointments in our life where something we really wanted to have happen didn't happen. And there really is this period of like, just letting yourself be sad. And it may sound silly. I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners are very far removed from school. Um, but uh, I remember taking the test very late. I finished it at like 11.30, like 30 minutes before it was supposed to be turned in. And I had to drive over to my girlfriend's house, um, spent the night there. And I remember even as I was driving over there, I knew I was in a bad mood. I just really felt disappointed in myself. And uh, I knew I was just going to spend the rest of the night, you know, however, however late I was up, even if it was only for another hour or two, thinking about what I would have to do this weekend to sort of bounce back. You know, clearly there, there was information I was looking at today that I needed to revisit and relearn. There was something I was not understanding. There was more time I needed to invest in this material. But also, how was I going to begin working on the material that was I needed to start looking at for the for the next week? You know, the train doesn't slow down, especially in a class like this at this pace. You just have to keep going. And so, you know, it just felt like more responsibility. Kind of like those feelings, like it doesn't matter... It, it doesn't matter how much I give, it's never going to be good enough. Well, such were my thoughts at the time. Um, but in some ways, you have this cushion of experience. Do you remember that term? I've used that. Uh, it's not my term. My therapist used it, who themselves took it from another therapist. But, you know, it's a pretty intuitive idea. It's, you know, you do something enough times as disappointing as it is, and it's it's not like we can ever really delete our feelings about things, 
but we have a cushion of experience, meaning there is a part of our brain, even as we're holding on to the sad feelings, that we've been through this enough times that we know it will get better. And so even though we're sad now, our, our hope isn't as diminished as it was earlier times. It's like uh, breakups. You know, breakups are always sad. And actually, it's not, and again, this is one of those things that's not linear. You may have, a, I mean, I think our first relationships are always devastating. Our first unrequited love, our first breakup, the first time we were rejected, those are all difficult. But actually, through your dating career, you have like some breakups that are very easy and some that should have been easy but were somehow devastating. <laughs> you know, the person you dated for a couple years and broke up with was like, and almost felt like a non-issue when you separated. And then the person that you dated for six months, you were like, it took you like two years to get over them. Uh, so that's a little strange, but all I'm saying is that you do carry these experiences. You carry the lessons of these experiences through your life so that when you do find yourself in a similar situation, although you feel your feelings, um, you have the cushion of experience. Uh, it's like failing on stage, you know, it's never as bad as you think it is. And you actually have to do it a fair amount of times to just get in a position where you're the type of person where you could be on stage and your voice can crack. I'm talking about singing here but your voice can crack or you can forget a lyric or whatever. And it actually doesn't phase you that much. You're not happy about it. You know, we always want to do well. But, um, you know, you see this if you go to open mics, people who are performing for the first time, they flub a lyric and you see the, you know, you see the cart start to shake, right? I've talked about this like a roller coaster ride. You know, there's always a little bit of tension and the audience never really experiences it, but you're, you're kind of steering... Like, if you've ever driven on a windy bridge, you know, you're in your lane, but you do feel buffeted, right? There's this wind sort of buffeting your vehicle, especially me. I drive a truck with, like, a camper shell. You know, it's it's a lot of mass. Wind really kind of shakes it, you know. And sometimes you start to drift, right? And then you start to, you start to correct in the other direction to stay in your lane. That's, performing can feel like that sometimes. Um... But you see some people that get shook very easily. They're they're drifting all over. They're all over the road, right? Once something strange happens, they're all over the road. Um, anyway, I'm probably making too much of this metaphor. Uh, but such were my feelings in response to this um, B that I got on my Chinese test. And actually, it was kind of interesting. I, I was talking talking about this with my girlfriend. I don't think she was nearly as interested in it than, as I was, but... You know, I'm I'm in communication with my teacher, my Lauscher. Uh, um, you know, it's funny taking a summer class like this. It's a bit like summer camp, or if you if you've ever gone to summer camp, and for me, I had many summers up in uh, at a performing arts camp in Northern Michigan. You know, you spend so much time with people so quickly that you become bonded and close very quickly. And uh, I'm not saying me and my teacher are best friends, um, but 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 there's this it's there's a kind of you know, when you spend three hours a day, you spend 12 hours, a, really, we're spending 12 hours a week with each other. You know, I'm spending more time with this teacher than I am with, you know, I was going to say my girlfriend, but I would say probably cumulatively, probably, probably about the same amount of time as I do with my girlfriend. But, you know, you just become close very quickly. So I uh, have no problem sending him an email, which I usually do after the tests. There might be a question or something I want some clarification on. But I took the test, and th- this is what I was trying to think through. You know, I am disappointed in my performance, absolutely. And at the same time, I prepared. You know, I did everything that I could. And I, I did all the homework 
I was going to say as it was assigned, but even before it was assigned, I reviewed those things. I knew the vocab. I participate in class. I attend all the classes. Um, and I study. You know, I study in a way I never studied before in my life, you know. I studied probably like 10 hours for this exam. And maybe there's something to be said for overstudying, frankly. I'm not sure if that's an actual phenomenon, but... um but as I was taking the test, it just felt too, it felt overwhelming. And I, I genuinely felt like there wasn't enough time. You know, I'm very prepared. I know the material. And yet I finished the test with 18 seconds left. Now, it would have been submitted either way. It's not like I, if I don't submit it, I don't get any points. It's just that your exam is submitted in the state that it is, right? And anything left unfinished is, you know, whether you, you may get partial credit or no credit or whatever. Um and I immediately, without really thinking about it, I just emailed the teacher and said, hey, you know what? This test felt especially difficult for me. It felt a little overwhelmingly difficult. And uh, would you consider on future tests giving us about 15, maybe even 30 more minutes? Uh, I feel like that would have given me time to uh, review my answers, you know, and, and maybe correct what were a lot of silly mistakes. Um but the, the, the PS, the postscript I said was, or, you know, not an actual PS, but I, I also noted, you know, that would be a luxury. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to do everything I can this week to make sure I don't have a repeat performance of this last exam. And uh, where am I going with that? I don't know. I, I think for me, I was just thinking through, like, there's a lot of people who, I mean, I've talked about this in terms of my experience with other teachers, which is, I, whether it's my, I think my chemistry teachers both, you know, the students were not very fond of these people, and they thought the class was too hard. And I'm not a person who shies away from challenges, you know? I'm not disappointed because, like, th- th- there's no feeling for me like, oh, this is unfair. Um, but there, there just was this feeling like I prepared. I genuinely feel like there really isn't enough time to take this test. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Maybe something about just having to be honest with yourself. You know, I felt compelled to really ask the teacher for more time. It just felt appropriate. And also... You know, I have to take responsibility and communicate to him, like, regardless of your choice or, or what you choose, whether or not you give us more time, I'm still going to do what I need to do, you know, and sort of expect the same constraints and sort of prepare myself for the next test. Anyway, I'm not, I don't know. Maybe I've, maybe I've talked about this too much. Anyway, suffice it to say, I went over to my girlfriend's place and I was kind of in a, I was kind of Mr. Poopy Pants for the couple hours that we were up before going to bed. <sighs> we, uh, we went to a wedding yesterday. Um, I don't know. I was saying earlier that everything gets done. I think one of the uh, enduring frustrations of my girlfriend is that I, you know, in many ways we're two different people. I was saying, uh, in another context, maybe we'll talk about it in another time, but I was articulating the way that me and my girlfriend think differently. I'm sorry if I, if I'm repeating myself or if I've said this on the podcast, um, 
I think I've said it conversationally, and so I feel like I'm repeating myself. But, you know, my girlfriend and I are very different in our thinking. Um, you know, we she's been trying to get a new bed frame. Ever since I dated her, she had the shitty IKEA bed frame that squeaks every time you move. It's 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 awful. You can't even lay in the thing comfortably. You in, in the middle of the night when you turn over, like the thing squeaks. It, it's a it's a absolute wonder that the thing hasn't collapsed beneath us, and yet it hasn't. Um, but she's been shopping for a new bed frame for a couple weeks. Actually, I feel like I did tell the story because I talked about picking the frame up from Ikea and taking the other one to the dump. Anyway, the point I'm trying to say is, is my girlfriend spent like multiple nights, hours and hours looking at bed frames on websites, comparing, contrasting, gathering data on different things. And for me, I was just beside myself because I would have made a decision in like 15 minutes. You know, I would have just gone to one place, you know, I probably would have just shown up to like Ikea, looked at what they had, looked at something that looked good and just gotten it because who gives a shit? You know, I, 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 I trust my ability to make an intuitive decision and just go with it and just live with it. Considering you'll never be able to compare, you know, you're just going to be in the life that you're living with this bed frame and you're you're not going to be able to compare it. Right. Like, I think more and more, and I, I, I experience this, but I, 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 I wonder if this is what's sort of my girlfriend sort of sitting with, but we have this perpetual FOMO, right? Like people live with chronic FOMO, this fear of missing out. Like we can't start watching something on Netflix and then 15 minutes in we're thinking like, oh, there's got to be something better to watch, you know? Like I, when I was younger, you would go to the video store and get like three movies and take them home for the weekend. And you would watch those movies like two or three times. And it didn't matter how good or bad they were. Like you'd be watching it going, oh, this movie is not very good. And yet you would still watch it like twice before you had to return it to the video store. And now there's just so much stuff that's just a click away. I can't watch something really without clicking out of it and just trying to look for something better because I feel like we we only want to give our time to the best, you know? Whereas for me, it's like, just make these intuitive decisions. Just like go with something, just move forward like a shark, right? Like if you ever stop swimming, you die. I don't know if that's actually true for sharks, but you know, just keep moving. You're never going to know the difference. Now, of course, there are certain decisions in life we want to give some serious thought to, but the bed frame is not one of them. That's, that's not the type of thing I want to be putting energy and thought into. And why am I telling you this? Why are we revisiting this story? My girlfriend and I are different. Oh, um, you know, she's upset with me. This wedding's been, you know, we've known about this wedding for months and months and months. And she's been preparing for it in her own way. I, I think this is very gendered thinking, but I think, a lot of, I think a lot of women are like this. You know, they get really excited, not their own wedding, although, of course, they get excited for that, but just going to a wedding. She bought like six dresses and had them delivered and just like tried them on and then like returned stuff and then ordered other stuff. And, you know, to me, that just seems like a fucking nightmare, but I, she really enjoys it. And, um, you know, for me, she's keeping like, she's like, you need to try on your suit. You know, I've talked about my weight here. I've gained a significant amount of weight and I've also lost some weight. So, uh, I was also in the same boat with her, like wondering if my suit was going to fit. Right. So she keeps telling me, you need to try on your suit. You need to try on your suit. You need to try on your suit. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't. And then, of course, uh, you know, on Monday or something, I try on my suit. It's a little tight. You know, do I fit in it? Technically, yes. But is it comfortable? Uh, 
when I'm standing there, am I going to be comfy sitting at dinner now that I have a stomach full of, you know, brisket or halibut or whatever they're serving? Am I going to be comfortable? Mm, I don't know. Am I going to feel very svelte in these photos? Mm, I don't think so. So anyway, I, I originally decided I'm just going to get a new shirt, right? I think that would do the trick. If I just had a different shirt that wasn't so tight, I'd feel better. Anyway, I go to this uh, shopping center that we have here in the Bay Area that I always go to, and I just go to the same store. I don't want to tell you what it is because I don't want to advertise for anybody, but I just walk in, and as I look around, I decide, you know what, I'm just going to get a suit. I'm going to get a new suit. I'm, I, I just want to feel comfortable. I'm going to put, I'm, I want something that fits well. I don't want to go to this thing and feel uncomfortable. So I get a whole new suit, and uh, it actually looks pretty good. And, uh, but I was in and out in about 20 minutes. And that includes trying everything on. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend sees me. She's like, wow, you look really, really good. And I was like, thank you. And she's like, when did you get that? I was like, on Wednesday. And she was like, when did you have time? I was like, it took me from the time I left my door to go to the store to buy the suit to come back. It probably took me like an hour. You know, just get it done. Just make a decision and go with it. And there was something else. I was. There's a whole other reason this story is coming up. I just can't remember what it is. Decision making, trying on suits, bed frames. I don't know. Sometimes you just got to connect the dots yourself. You know what I'm saying? Maybe this is a good time. <laughs> well, anyway, we go to this wedding. I was going to say maybe this is a good time to tell that story. But um, you know, my girlfriend's family is uh, Vietnamese and huge family, and everybody's sort of just kind of everybody's connected, which is insane because in my family, there are members of my immediate family that I don't speak with. You know, my girlfriend is going to the wedding of like her dad's cousin and you're and, and like making a huge deal of it. And you're like, that just seems nuts to me. And, uh, we show up and we're meeting. There's like some side of my girlfriend's someone on her father's side of the family who actually came and saw me perform one time when I was in Seattle, which was very kind and generous of them. Um, but they were going to be there as well. And so thank God, because we didn't know anyone else at this wedding. There was like another couple that we could see and kind of like, you know, pair with and have someone to talk to other than just uh, staring at each other the entire night. So we're talking to them. And uh, at one point in the evening, we're sort of standing there and they're asking me about music because they've, they've seen me perform. And I was just like, man, I haven't picked up my guitar in about a year and a half. And they're like, you playing any shows in Seattle? And I was like, definitely not, not even on the radar. And, uh, the girl says, oh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, my, you know, her partner came to pick her up from the airport. They had flown in separately for, uh, you know, uh, for one reason or another. He says, oh, he was listening to your music. And he said, oh, that's not true. I was actually listening to the podcast. And I swear it was like getting punched in the stomach. You know, it's one thing for someone to say that they're listening to your music. That's kind of embarrassing enough. It's, it just feels vulnerable. But the idea of somebody listening to this podcast is truly fucking frightening for me. And, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it was like I, I, I actually felt like, like very vulnerable and exposed. And, uh, and I felt embarrassed, you know, um, I don't know what that says, but, uh, that's how I felt actually though. It was kind of an interesting wedding. Um, the bride, uh, and her side of the family were Vietnamese. 
the groom's side was white and Jewish. And so they kind of had an interesting ceremony where they split it. The uh, ceremony aspect was uh, Jewish. They had the chuppah, I think that's what it's called, and the breaking of the glass and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I guess just to that end, like ceremonies now are becoming, I feel like, well, maybe it's partly just living in the Bay Area, but I feel like a lot of spirituality and religion is becoming, I mean, certainly the language and the ceremonies are sort of canonized, right? But what's kind of being, what's sort of like the the glue or the sap that's sort of seeping into every other crevice is kind of this, like, this very similar kind of pan-spirituality that's sort of like Unitarian Universalist meets like Rumi meets Khalil Gibran kind of something. Like, it sort of smacks of the East, but it's not like... Hinduism or Buddhism, it's just this kind of like, I don't know, kind of woo-woo, dream catchery kind of thing. It was just very bizarre. There was like a female, I don't even know if you call her a rabbi, but she, she led the uh, the ceremony aspect. And it was very kind of uh, dreamy, woo-woo, I don't know, whatever. But um. The, the, my favorite part of the ceremony was the Vietnamese part. So after the, the ceremony proper, they have a, a lion dance. Now, you may not know what that means all of a sudden, or right when I say it, but imagine like Chinese New Year's, the people who like do the dragon, right? There's someone in the head of the dragon and someone's the body of the dragon, and they're doing these like dragon dance. So I don't know why they call it a lion dance. It, I assume it was a dragon, but maybe it's a lion. I don't know. Um... But uh, they had a, a show. They had a lion dance show, which to me was fucking rad. And uh, it was kind of funny. There's like a whole plot. There's basically like two dragons who like enter the space. And they have like a band, like people banging cymbals and like banging drums. It's very cool. And they have this little plot where there's like a wine jug. And it's this like tiny little thing, but they're like jumping on it. And they're like jumping on each other's shoulders. And, and then they like drink the wine. And then like the lions are drunk and they're like wobbling around. And I don't know. It's very cool. Um, and, uh, where am I going? I don't know. I will say that when I showed up, we, um, my girlfriend was supposed to show up early to take pictures and, uh, it's a story of my life. This actually reminds me of two things, but, uh, we were told that we had to be there. Like the ceremonies at five, we had to be there at three forty-five for pictures. We show up and basically the wedding planner is like, Oh, Hey, hello. And we're like, hi. And she's like, who are you? And we're like, uh, we're, we're guests. She's like, oh, you guys are early. I was like, oh, we're actually here for photos. She's like, oh, you're the first ones here. And we're like, oh, where's the bride and groom? It's like, oh, they're not here yet. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why are we here before the bride and groom? So we like, this was an outdoor wedding. We like mosey over into the shade somewhere and I'm just sitting there. But as I'm sitting there, and I'm seeing like the band set up. They're like setting up the chuppah, which is, I think that's, I think that's what it's called. And my girlfriend said, oh, it's kind of interesting to see the sort of behind the scenes. And I said, you know what? I was literally just thinking, you know, when I was like touring with Matt Nathanson or when you open up for bigger artists, really anytime you play a show. But I'm, I'm talking about when you're in like these sort of big venues that are sort of staffed or whatever. Like if you're playing up in the poster room at the Fillmore and you see like the the sound check for the big bands on the main stage and 
you know, when I was touring with Matt Nathanson, like when you just see how like these bigger shows, like that, that people just sort of walk into and experience like a show, you see the behind the scenes and it's very not romantic. And the reason for that is you just see how for the, for nearly every single person there besides like the guests and the people who are making it happen, there is nothing special going on. This is what they do all the time. And it's rather mundane actually. And it both makes, I mean, in some ways it's good. It's consciousness raising. It makes you more mindful of the staff and the role that they play that for the most part, the people who are unsung and unnoticed are the ones who make everything happen. You know, like I'm thinking about this in terms of music, like, you know, the bartenders or the sound guy or the lighting guy or the crew, the people you never see who basically build the stage and hang the lights and run the show. Usually the artists are the least important people on stage, especially for modern productions. You know, the truth is there's a lot of backing tracks. There's plenty of people who sing along to vocal tracks. It's just all very sort of press play and the show sort of runs itself. Um, There's probably a little more nuance to that, but I, I think... You know, there's many people who would tell you that that's actually not too far from the truth. Um, but uh, seeing that, it was just interesting to see that for the wedding as well. You know, I have friends who are professional musicians who, uh, although they have their own creative endeavors and their own creative pursuits and their own body of work that they're trying to perform, they really make their money performing weddings and events in general. I'm thinking of my one friend in particular, Jefferson Berge, who, if you listen to his own music, it's like very raunchy and sexual and crude and funny. That's like his whole thing, you know, and he's very, very good at that. But he, for many years, has made his money uh, producing weddings. Like he'll be the MC, he puts the band together, he basically runs the whole show from the, uh, from the music side, you know, and MCing and sort of hosting and all that sort of stuff. And uh, just to see how, I don't know, maybe mundane is not the right word, but just seeing how performative is it all is you know it's and even as a wedding guest there's a part of me too that thinks like when i have a wedding i really only want to invite a few people you know it always turns out to be nice but i don't think anyone really looks forward to weddings right it's always just kind of a big hassle you know and it's it's kind of nice but does what do we what do we feel when we see the ceremony and it's like your lo- this this is a ring it never ends and it, it you know it's it's circular and it is representative of your love and yada 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 you know most we all know that over 50% of marriages end in divorce you know and it's all like i will love you more and more each day and you're the light of my life and we're going to grow ever ever more deeper in love and through high and thick and thin and high and low half the people sitting there are divorced or in mar- like marriages where they like the part is like just in life in general when you're older you look at younger people and the declarative statements they make about their lives and their futures and what it's going to be and half the time you think this person has no idea what they're in for isn't everybody thinking that at a wedding like everybody who is married everybody who's been married for some time especially the adults like the parents of the people getting married, how many, like, aren't there, there's like eight parents at a wedding usually, right? Because people have been like twice or three times divorced. You know, like, I don't know. It just all seems, in some ways, it seems kind of like antiquated. Um, But uh, I sound like such a fucking Scrooge here. (laughs) 
Ah, but here's the thing. I was sort of sitting there as we were watching everybody get things uh, together. And I saw the band setting up. And it was just sort of an interesting moment for me because here I am sitting here in the shade of this tree. And uh, I'm in my suit. And I'm in my summer school. And I'm, you know, very far removed from the music world. And yet there's something about just watching these musicians set up from a distance where... I felt like I knew exactly who they were, the types of people they were, what this gig meant to them, what they mu- must be feeling, you know, watching them set up on the patio and uh, just the, you know, just the, um, you know, the habit of like loading and unloading your gear and setting up in a, in a place like an outdoor venue and setting up the PA and just being part of the scenery. Like being a musician, you kind of live in this... Uh, you know, especially for these types of gigs, but honestly, in general, anyway, even when you're a supporting act on a tour, you live in this place where, like, you're not that important. You know, people just kind of assume, like, they, they like, you're, you, you can, you sort of feel unassuming. People don't think that much of you. They kind of look at you as, like, um, somehow subservient, you know, and, um, and kind of a loser, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's just kind of a it's just kind of a weird existence to be in. You kind of feel like you're in this uh, I don't know this kind of purgatory, you know. And so just kind of watching them the entire night. I even walked up to one of them and said like, uh, "Hey, you're in the band. Hey, what's it been like? It's really cool that you get to work again." And yada yada yada. And uh, and I just started getting talking, and I'm asking like, "Do you know this person? Do you know that person?" Because I know a lot of people who do this stuff, and they're like, "Oh yeah 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 yeah, I know that person. Yeah yeah." yeah. And I was even texting some people saying like, oh, this drummer is here. Like, oh, he says he knows you. He says what's up. And uh, so that was kind of cool to kind of feel like, you know, you're kind of in with the band or whatever. Um, but also just watching them throughout the night, like where they're in their own kind of little ecosystem. You know, you see them like stealing glances to each other and kind of having fun with the music. Like they're playing like uh, Beyonce put a, or is it Beyonce? Yeah, Beyonce put a ring on it. You know, they're doing like their sort of uh, horn arrangement of it, you know. And, uh, cause like when you do weddings, like you're always given like a playlist and you have to like, you know, you play basically everything all you play, like people who actually play gigs, like wedding gigs or whatever, they have a rep, they have a repertoire of usually like over a, like, you know, at least 500, maybe a thousand, maybe 1500 songs, you know, from popular songs from every decade that they can just play at the drop of a hat. And like every year they have to learn like 40 more, like whatever the big songs that year are, they just know how to play them. And, uh, you know, so people ask for like songs, oh, you know, that they think are funny and original, but of course they've played this song 500 times, right? So it's like, oh, we want like kind of a cool wedding arrangement of uh, put a ring on it. So they're like, okay, so they do that. But you see them kind of play and have fun with it, you know, and uh, just kind of existing on the side of everything that's taking place. It's just a very interesting existence. I will say one of the highlights of the night is... Uh, you know, when you go to a wedding, you know, I'm with my partner, but we don't really know anyone else. And it's always kind of weird for me to just kind of consider like, where are we going to be sat for dinner? You know, everybody has like a table placement and you're always kind of, it's always fine. You know, you can always start a bullshit conversation with somebody. Where are you from? What do you do? How do you know so-and-so? Who side of the wedding are you with? And yada, yada, yada. And you have these sort of bullshit adult conversations where, you know, everybody's just kind of in the same boat. Like you just, we all kind of know that we're just kind of bullshit and we're kind of friends for 30 minutes kind of conversations and uh like talking to someone on an airplane right before you just sort of go back to your book and put your headphones back on or fall asleep 
all that sort of small talky type stuff. And we're sort of seated away from everybody. And uh, we're at this table. And across from us are two people who, when we sat down, we thought they were together, uh, male and a female. We just assumed they were a couple. But as we're all sort of talking, we realized that, oh, these two people actually don't know each other. They're both two single people at a wedding. And I was like, wow, that is very vulnerable. For me, I would feel very vulnerable going to a wedding alone. I mean, unless you just are, by nature, a very outgoing person who's fine walking up to people and striking up a conversation, it could be be very uncomfortable, you know? I mean, when I was single and just kind of going to bars, you know, I would have to set tasks for myself, like... I'm going to sit here and not look at my phone while everybody else, like if you're ever just, uh, you know, whether it's the bus or here we have BART, which is like the train. If you just watch people, people are incredibly uncomfortable in their own skin when they don't feel like they have anything to do. They check their phone every minute, like something happened. Nothing's fucking happened on their phone, but they just pull it out and look at it like habitually. You know, and people do that at bars. They just get buried in their phone because it's hard to talk to people. It's hard to just sit there and like look around comfortably and to be standing at a wedding, like, when there's really nothing going on, or what if people start dancing, like, what are you going to do? It's it's hard to make that leap into being social, you know? And I know it's harder for some people than others, but I think I think you all know what I'm talking about. But we're sitting across from these two people, and they're both, you know, cool enough. And uh, as the night starts going, you can tell that these people are kind of, like, falling into a conversation. They've had a couple of drinks. Things get kind of, like people get more loosey-goosey, people start laughing more, and by the time the dancing starts, you can tell that these two have really kind of hit it off, and I observed this thing that I just, I was, I was like really cheering for this guy, because I could tell that he was stoked that he had like found someone at this wedding, and you could totally tell that they were probably going to go back to the hotel and like hook up or whatever, but there was this great moment, you know, when you've been in a relationship for a long time, sometimes you think about what it would be like dating, And to see it, it's very charming. To actually be in that situation, you actually remember how kind of miserable and and scary it can be. And scary may sound heavy-handed, but I'm just talking about, you know, like, they were on the dance floor, and I I saw this thing, this look in this guy's eyes that I just, I related to very deeply, which is they were clearly interested in each other, they were dancing, she was kind of making eyes at him and he was, you know, trying to make eyes at hers. He wasn't the smoothest guy in the world, but he, you know, not to uh, sound too uh, irreverent, but he had caught, he, he had made a catch, right? And uh, as they're dancing, dancing is so fucking uncomfortable because you never really know how intimate to get, like what's appropriate or, or what isn't, you know, but you have to just kind of initiate and kind of make a move and just kind of see what's okay and how that person responds and... Just watching them dance together, was he was doing the whole thing where it's like, I'm going to try putting my hand on your waist and see how that works. And, you know, watching her look at him, like basically giving him eyes like, it's all good, man. And it's just, I don't know, there was something about it that was very endearing and touching. And I remember saying to my girlfriend, like, I am so fucking rooting for these two. Like, how cool. Like, like again, it's very vulnerable, like going to a wedding by yourself. And... uh and is it too cliche, like, a lot of people want to go to a wedding and, like, hook up? You know? I've never had that experience. But um, it has to be, like, nearly ubiquitous, right? People get drunk. Everybody's staying in the same hotel. Man, maybe weddings are fun. Maybe people, maybe people do look forward to them. What's that movie, Wedding Crashers? I know people love that movie. I've only seen it a couple of times. But um, 
I barely remember any of it, honestly. But, uh... Oh, excuse me. Yawning at you. Well. Anyway. Those two probably woke up today in the same bed. Good for them. Mazel tov. I had this, uh, I was in therapy on, uh, I have therapy on Tuesdays typically, and I was in my therapy appointment, and uh, usually when I'm quiet for a while, my therapist lets me just sort of sit there in silence for about five minutes, and the question she always asks me to sort of get the conversation going again, is she's like, where are your thoughts? Where are your thoughts right now? Or where are your thoughts going? And uh, last week I uh, I said, I'm actually thinking about the, there's this documentary on HBO, it's been out for a while now, but I just, I've only just seen it. It's called Allen vs. Pharaoh, and it's uh, the Woody Allen Mia Pharaoh you know, child molestation case. Are you familiar with that? Sorry. I'm like burping, yawning, and rubbing something out of my eye at the same time. Um, it's a four-part documentary about you know, the child molestation allegations against Woody Allen. And... Uh, it's, uh, you know, not that it has to be, but it's certainly not a very objective or how do I say it? It's not, not a dispassionate documentary. They, they, from the get-go, you understand the perspective of the, doc- of the documentarians. They believe, and I think rightfully, that uh, Dylan Farrow, who was uh, Woody Allen's, uh, I believe, that was a biological daughter? Had to have been. I think so. Mia Farrow, I don't know, you, you you might know this, many of you might not, I don't know how well-versed in popular culture, or really how old most of you are, um, but uh, Mia Farrow was a very famous actress, Rosemary's Baby, etc. She and Woody Allen linked up, she had, a, like, I think ended up, she ended up having, like, nine children, most of them adopted from, like, Asia, and uh, I believe they had a biological child together, I believe... I believe Dylan Farrow is Woody Allen's biological daughter. Regardless, um, you know, the documentary presents this portrait where Woody Allen was very much infatuated with his daughter, um, very inappropriate, and, you know, people witnessed a lot of disturbing behavior between them, which all sort of culminated in this experience where uh, they disappeared for like 20 minutes one time and he like, you know, the the allegation is that he took her into the attic and sexually assaulted her. It's not entirely clear what happened. You know, you assume something atrocious. Um, but when this story came to light, when Mia Farrow found out about this, there was this huge court case and, and I guess the, uh, Mia Farrow had like filmed her daughter recounting the story shortly after it happened in a video camera. They went to see a doctor, and because the doctor was mandated to report it, there was a criminal case that was opened up. And it's sort of funny because, you know, the story that many of us know about Woody Allen is that he did end up marrying 
and falling in love with Mia Farrow's other daughter, her adopted daughter, Sun Yi, I believe is her name. I believe she's Chinese, actually. Um, who was like 21 or something at the time. Um, that they, well, that they went public with their relationship. But that in and of itself was a huge story and always sort of followed Woody Allen around. I was not aware that the abuse of Dylan Farrow was actually happening around the same time. And so basically it recounts this entire period where the story breaks that there, you know, Woody Allen might have molested his uh, daughter. And the way that Woody Allen and his whole team responded is they sort of portrayed this as, you know, a story that Mia Farrow had like inculcated her daughter into believing and that she had been lied to and she was coached to repeat this thing. And really, uh, this was just playing out because Mia Farrow was um, vindictive that Woody Allen had had an affair with her uh, oldest daughter, I believe, and that they were now together. And and, and Mia Farrow was just this sort of spiteful, uh, vengeful uh, woman, really, was how it was framed. And it's just the most creepy documentary you've ever seen. And like, if you if you ever saw Finding Neverland, the Michael Jackson documentary, it really just takes your perception of somebody that you think you know, and you, you kind of, you know, I even lived through the Michael Jackson child molestation allegations, all of them. You know, I was a huge Michael Jackson fan when the first allegations broke. And even seeing how that played out in the uh, in the media, um, it's just fascinating what the public perception of an experience is when you get the other side of what was happening behind the scenes and seeing, you know, most of us live our lives and we have these, we, we have these very strongly held beliefs about things that are happening in, in the world and in popular culture. And we defend them with such fervor, you know, all the while not realizing how much of the story we're missing. You know, and watching how this sort of Woody Allen versus Mia Farrow story played out in the in the in the public, and what the public perception was at the time of the events that were taking place and the sides that people took, nobody knew what was really going on. You know, the only stories that we get in the media are the sort of sculpted product of publicists and and PR and uh, and news outlets, and it's not the truth. You know, there's this whole thing now. I mean, our our political world is so dichotomized, if that's even a word. People just sort of take these sides and they pretend or lie to themselves thinking that they have these informed decisions when nobody does any real research. Nobody does any real looking into things anymore. I mean, of course, some people do, but those people's interests are very specialized. The truth is most of us already know what we believe before we even have any of the facts. You know, and we have that sort of confirmation bias where, you know, I mean, people do this with politics. Like people start rattling off facts like they know what the fuck they're talking about as if they didn't just sort of absorb that from a blog post that supports their own position anyway. Um, Like I remember this moment, the way I sort of think about politics, I remember one time, you know that scene, you know, have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? There's a great scene that many of us remember where uh, Matt Damon's character, Will Hunting, goes to a bar, and this guy is just sort of spouting off knowledge that he read in a book as if it was his own thoughts. And uh, Will, Matt Damon's character, basically is supposed to be a brilliant guy, and he basically just cites everything the guy's talking about. He's like, yeah, you got that from so-and-so, page 94. 
yeah, pretty soon you'll be talking about X, Y, and Z, which is from this, but you know, next year you'll be reading this book and you'll be spouting this, that, and that. And the guy is completely laid bare because here he, what he's like, you know, trying to convince people that he's smart when really he's just reciting things that he read out of a fucking book. That's how most of us live our lives. We vehemently defend and repeat things that we've heard somewhere else as if they're our, our own ideas and that it's the truth when really it's not. It's, it's what somebody else wants you to believe. And so even though I watched this uh, Alan vs. Farrow documentary, and I absolutely believe the story that Dylan Farrow tells, I believe that Woody Allen, you know, molested this, molested his daughter. And when you look at it, you realize, it, I mean, it's just a profoundly creepy man in general. Uh, you know, it's very easy to say this now, but the truth is, is if, especially as an adult, even though I've loved Woody Allen's movies, like he had a real turning point too with uh, Matchpoint, I believe, where he really began to sort of experiment in a very different way with the sort of the sort of drama element, not just the, the 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 comedy or whatever. When he actually took a step back as a persona from his films, actually, but um, but uh, you know, be, being a great filmmaker aside, he does do this thing where like he'll work with an actress for a a period of time, and of course, there's this sort of um, fawning type feeling to it. Right, like he'll do a, a couple of movies with Scarlett Johansson, and you do get the impression like this is like a, a director like fawning over an actress. You know, there there's a pseudo sexual kind of element there, but the creepiest part of this documentary, I mean, there's a couple illuminating things. Obviously, Woody Allen did not participate in the documentary, but what they do do very, which I think is a very brilliant idea, is they use his voice from his own. Uh, the recording of his own book, right? He did a book on tape, right? He wrote a book and then he did the audio book for it. They just lift the audio from the audio book of him, like his own biography that he wrote or something like commenting on the events that took place and uses them uh, to sort of compare and contrast like how he would relate the events and and what, you know, they're sort of representing to uh, have actually occurred. Uh, But also they have these recorded phone conversations, uh, Mia Farrow around this time began recording her phone conversations with Woody Allen uh, as they're sort of talking about going to trial and the the abuse of uh, Dylan Farrow. And Woody Allen just sounds like this cold-blooded, like, sociopath. Uh, you know, just just very, very creepy. I mean, the only thing I can sort of compare it to, and it's it's very different in many ways, but when you hear the tapes of, like, Mel Gibson, like, with his... Uh, I forget her name, but like his ex-wife where he's calling her a slut and like she like, you know, whatever it is, you can find it online. He sounds like a completely different person. He's ranting and raving. He sounds absolutely insane. And you think, wow, what a far cry from the person that Mel Gibson presents to the world. Right. And you have that feeling with Woody Allen, too. He sort of comes off as this sort of meek sort of harmless person but when you hear him you you just get the overwhelming sense that he's this cold deeply calculating creepy person and one of the weirdest insights too is i, I guess for years woody allen has been giving his notes and his drafts and his, of his scripts and all this stuff to i believe princeton they have this huge archive of his working materials this is just this repository of of his of his work um and uh the ubiquitousness of like dating younger girls is just insane and they just show you all these examples of like nearly every i mean his movie manhattan alone which is about his he's like 
you know, having an, he's in a relationship with like a 17 year old girl. Uh, very, very creepy. It just shows you how uh, different times are that that even floated, that 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 was even like possible in, in, in a movie. The major plot line of this movie is Woody Allen dating a 17 year old. Very, very crazy. But yeah, incredibly creepy guy. Anyway, I'm trying to bring that back to me. What does that have to do with me? I don't know. I guess it's at the heart of this documentary. I mean, I, I, there's something about, if you just look at the core story of somebody who's been, a, uh, you know, someone who's not only just been sexually abused as a child, but it's a very, <clears throat> let me start again. You know, whether it's a documentary or a movie, very few of us have lived the lives that we look at. And of course, many people have been sexually abused. What's exceptional about this scenario is you have someone who heretofore has been a non-public figure, the child of Woody Allen, who was sexually abused, who has not been public about this story. Obviously, this was all over the news, but it has since disappeared. You know, I trying to think of what year this happened. I, I was born in 85. I, I may have even have been alive, even as a child. You know, I may, may have been alive when this story broke, and yet I really don't remember or know anything about it. Um, it just doesn't come up in conversation. Like, the story is, like, I didn't even know about him molesting his daughter. It was just, oh, he married and, like, had an affair with the oldest daughter of Mia Farrow. Like, th- that that you remember, which is creepy, but I was not even aware of the sexual assault, uh, uh, the child, I should say the child molestation allegations. And you have this uh, incredibly powerful man. And there's something about this idea of what people believe, what people defend, and, and who they hurt with their beliefs, and why people believe the things they do, and the hills that people want to die on when they don't even, aren't even in possession of the facts. There's something about that drama of Dylan Farrow, and I'm, you know, I'm calling her a character, I just don't really know what else to say, but Dylan Farrow's character where she had an experience that she knows to be true. I'm just giving her the benefit of the doubt. She knows this to be true. And yet she has been living her life. I mean, the, the molestation itself is traumatic enough. That wreaks its own amount of havoc. But in some ways, I don't want to speak for her, but one can imagine that the real drama is sort of coming to terms yourself with the truth of what you've experienced when sitting across from you is half I mean, half the the population, but also a very powerful man who's telling you that you're nuts and that it never happened. And I'm not saying that you're that Dylan Farrow for a second was ever truly convinced that it didn't happen. But you know, at the time she was evaluated by like three people at Yale, who basically their conclusion, which has since been debunked, was that she was being fed the story and that it was you know her own whatever, you know, uh, either it was something she was being fed by her mother or whatever the case may be. But the drama that you sort of live with is like, this person now as an adult feels like the, the, the cultural climate really following the Me Too movement as such that they can finally talk about the story. And when people start coming out and validating their story and their experience, it's very liberating for them. And you know, obviously many of us have been sexually molested and abused. And so very literally we, 
we understand that drama. But there's something about, and this is what I said, like with all art, you know, a documentary is important. But people love true crime, not because they, you know, actually have that experience, but there's something about the, the structure of that drama, of finding the truth, of people living with the deception that it, it sort of touches something that we do live with. And there's, there's two takeaways I have from this Alan Versfero documentary. One is when I think about Woody Allen, you have to believe this man is insane because if he was one, these types of things just don't happen to people who are innocent. You know, it just never could have taken root. There's something about this allegation that, I mean, it just, I think it is true. Um, I'm not wording this very well. The real point I'm trying to get at is when I think about Woody Allen living through something like that and continuing to work, he must be a sociopath because I can't imagine anybody living through that type of allegation, that level of public scrutiny, being such a public figure and like living through that, weathering that storm and just like continuing on with their life. Like I got to, I got to be on a, on a, on a, on an exam in Chinese. And it's like, I live with that pressure and it actually affects me emotionally. I'm not saying I'm devastated by it, but can you imagine the emotional bandwidth or the insanity you must have to live through a public scrutiny? Like, like, how do you live with that? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like someone like Donald Trump lives with like an impeachment, like, a federal case, like people looking into your fine. Like I get nervous when I go see my CPA. If I go to H and R block to file my fucking taxes, the idea of somebody looking at my finances is like, I like get butterflies in my stomach about it. The idea, let's, so you, let's say you're Woody Allen, you know, you molested your daughter and this story breaks. Why don't, why don't you kill yourself? How do you, how do you function? How do you live? How are you not just vomiting over the toilet, racked with guilt, right? Like you read a novel like Crime and Punishment, which we've talked about on this podcast, or The Telltale Heart, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe story. You know, we, we have this idea of like people who live with this, the, the racking guilt of who they are and what they've done. The idea that someone like Woody Allen just kind of goes about their lives, you think, wow, this person's insane, that this person did that because I believe that they did and they just go about their life. That person is fucking nuts. And the fact that there's an entire institution, the entertainment industry that like has supported this person for the last X number of years is nuts as well. So that drama, that's one of my takeaways. The other one is Dylan Farrow's story, which I think is you know, really the story at the center of the whole documentary, which is this idea that someone is living with a battle, they, they know something to be true, and yet whether it's you know the powerful perpetrator man sitting across from them who has convinced half the culture, half the population rather, that it didn't happen, that you're nuts, it's like you can't really be a full, fully formed person you know, there's this essential puzzle piece to your to yourself, the way you experience yourself in the world that is missing, that until this is rectified, until this core experience that is the most formative experience of your life is validated, 
it's like you can't really become a fully formed person, right? You're just a square peg and trying to fit into a round hole your entire life. It, the, the puzzle pieces just aren't fitting together. And although you're never fully, you never fully heal from an experience like that, I just, I wonder if a lot of us live with that. You know, there's some core truth about ourselves that we're sort of holding on to and protecting that we're wanting the world to validate. And we just feel like if we could be free of the doubt and just sort of live in the truth of that, that somehow we could like become the people that we're supposed to become, you know? And not to sound too dramatic about it, but clearly in Woody Allen's case, there's somebody who has a vested interest in in you not accomplishing that because their self-image, their feelings about themselves are entirely contingent upon the opposite being true or the lie perpetuating. Does that make sense? I mean, I've been watching... And I know we're going over long here, but let's just, let's just go. We'll, we'll go as long as we have to for this episode. But I've been, you know, I've been interested in religion my whole life. And recently I've gotten back into like, one thing I find myself looking on YouTube is uh, evangelical sermons. There's this new uh, uh, pastor, preacher. I don't know his full name. His last name is MacArthur. He's very conservative. He's, you know, but uh, he's, in some ways I feel very entertained by him, even though I vehemently disagree with most of the points that he makes. There's something to me very, you know, I see these people who are like conservative pastors and they're, they're very great orators and great rhetoricians and they're very well read. Like they're, they're very brilliant in their own way. They've taken this great intellect and pointed it at the Bible and biblical interpretation and examining the culture. And it's, it's all built on a bunch of bullshit, but, (laughs) but it's also very impressive in its own way. And so I've really enjoyed hearing this person speak. But his entire worldview, right, is is predicated on the existence of God. And even though that's not true, you know, you just feel if that was ever overturned, their entire sense of themselves would just completely crumble, you know? And it doesn't mean that in their private lives they're not completely tortured, right? Like you think about, is it Ted Haggard? Who was the the pastor who was like very evangelical, fire and brimstone? Turns out he was like smoking meth, smoking meth with male prostitutes. I'm kind of talking about this with Woody Allen. You just have people who live these complete Jekyll and Hyde lives. And it's like if the truth was ever out or confirmed, their entire world just completely falls apart. And they see that happening. You just, I, I can't imagine people like Donald Trump, Woody Allen... Uh, who else? I mean, you pick it. Michael Jackson. These people who live this crazy sort of Damocles type existence where at any moment, everything that they have could be completely fucking destroyed. And the amount of years that they just spend throwing money and resources and energy at keeping the inevitable catastrophe of their life at bay until like a Shakespearean tragedy, you know, this fatal flaw in their being outs and they are destroyed. I mean, it's like Macbeth, right? You just keep killing and killing and killing and you're more and more steeped in blood 
to just maintain the lie until, you know, Dylan Farrell has the courage to like write, uh, uh, um, you know, an article for the New York Times or the LA Times or whatever it was. But it's like, in those moments, I guess the saddest part, you know, here Woody Allen has all this, quote, power and money. And that's all very real. I'm not saying it's not. And this is, and the truth is, is that Woody Allen is mentally ill on some level. He has some type of personality problem. I'm not excusing his behavior. I'm just saying, you think about the constitution of a person who can live being a child molester and just like going about their lives. And like, even when the truth outs, like they don't just kill themselves. They actually fight back. It's just insane to me. But, um, the truth is, and this is the scary part, Dylan Farrow has all the power. But they don't realize it. They don't feel it. And so it's like, they have the power to topple this person. Do you know? I'm not sure I'm articulating this very clearly, but it's like, the people that you've hurt, they actually have so much power over you. Actual It's psychic power. It's actual power. You are compromised. And it's like, you know, it's that sort of Damocles thing. You're just living a lie. And it's very, I mean, it's very crazy. The person you've hurt the most, the person who has the most incentive to want to see your undoing holds the key to that very thing happening. And yet because of the psychological torment that you put them through, you know, the psychological warping that your own violence against them has done to them, they don't realize that they have the power. But you imagine them living in fear. If this person ever, you know, it's like putting Rapunzel in the tower or something. If they ever find a way out, you're fucked. Hmm. Anyway, there's something profound there. I, I don't have the I don't have the power to express it, but um, yeah, I'll continue to meditate and marinate on that, and, and maybe something will come from it. Anyway, we've gone over long this episode. I do have to get out of here. So, whew, I will say thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. And the video podcast, available now on thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. Watch the video on our website or click through. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. All those good things. Um, We will be rushing through the last 10 episodes here on our way to 100. Uh, If you've been here the whole time, great. If you're just tuning in, that's phenomenal as well. I look forward to speaking with you in the next few weeks at least um until the next time thank you for listening thank you for your time and ciao for now